We're going to go back tonight to our study that we began a few weeks ago in the book of Ecclesiastes. So take your Bibles and turn right after Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and we'll be in chapter 1 tonight as we uh, are going to, the last time we looked at at the book of Ecclesiastes, we kind of did an introduction of the whole um, book and looked at, you know, its author and the theme and, and those sorts of things. Um, but tonight we're going to jump in uh, to the first section as we talk about the theme of Ecclesiastes is living a meaningful life. How do we live a life of meaning here on this earth? Because one of the things we all have in common is we live here on this earth, right? And we're all looking for how, what does that mean to live in a way that matters? And Solomon uh, shared with us, uh, he shares with us throughout this book, and we see that, that he is, is sharing the wisdom that God has given to him and the things that he has um, experienced in his own life and talks to us now uh, through this book under inspiration of the Holy Spirit about what that means. And so tonight, uh, we're looking at the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes 1 and considering this idea, the futility of the temporal. Follow along as we read there, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the, goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. The old saying goes, that humans are creatures of habit. And indeed, we must agree we are, right? Most Sundays, that point is proved as you walk into church and you head straight for the same pew or the same general area of pews that you always sit in. I see you laughing because you're sitting in those pews tonight, okay? It's quite humorous, by the way, to stand up here and watch someone come in and they walk up and someone's sitting in their pew, right? The look on someone's face, like, what do we do now, right? You know, we have to sit somewhere else. Um, that just proves the point, that we are creatures of habit. We do the same things day in and day out. I mean, let's, let's think about that, right? You set the alarm, you get up when it goes off, or maybe 10 minutes after it goes off, how many ever times you hit the snooze button, right? You, you go about whatever your morning routine is, you drive to work, you eat lunch, you work some more, you go home, you eat dinner, you go throughout whatever your eating's activities might be, a lot of them the same things that you might do throughout each day and, or week, you go to bed, you set the alarm, 
And what happens the next morning? The alarm goes off. It's the same thing, right? Over and over and over again. Now, one of the things, my wife and I were talking about this last week when our family was on vacation. One of the things I enjoy about family vacation is we're not doing the same things over and over. We're in a different place doing different things with our family. That's one of the things that attracts us uh, of going and doing something different and new. And as we go through the, the cyclical nature of our lives, we are inevitably faced with this question. Is it worth it? Is what I'm doing day in and day out worth doing? Am I making a difference? Am I fulfilling the dream? And Solomon, here in the first section of Ecclesiastes, okay, be prepared. This is what he says. It's not worth it. You're like, wow, that was real encouraging. Just hang on, okay? But what he's saying here is is that just going through this life, if you're just going through life hoping to find meaning, in, in these day-after-day activities, you're not going to find meaning in these, these things that just happen day after day after day. It's, again, a much-needed reality check for our lives that we live. And so what we see in these 11 verses is this temporal life offers us nothing but futile, fleeting happiness, long forgotten under the sands of time. And that's, again... One of the, the key ideas to remember about life, it is very temporal, right? It's, it's, so, uh, it's, it's so quickly here and then gone. Um, and the things that we do here, they matter in the moment, and then X amount of years later, they don't matter anymore, right? And we do our best to, to hold on to the temporal, right? I mean, we just got back from a trip where we went to Boston and saw these things. Our family went to Toronto, went up to the CN Tower. And, and so Friday we get back and we sit down at lunch. And I say to my kids, okay, tell me the things you enjoyed the most. You know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to imprint on their brains something from this temporal trip that we took so that five years from now, I said, do you remember? And they go, well, we don't remember that at all, right? Because it's a fleeting thing. But it's a reality that the temporal life we live, though it can be filled with the joy of serving the Lord and those things, and that's the perspective we'll talk about as we go through the book of of Ecclesiastes, if it's just this life, it doesn't offer us a a lot in return. We need the eternal perspective of relationship with God. And so let's jump in here tonight and look at what unfolds in these first few verses. And, and we're going to spend the first couple of minutes here uh, recovering a little bit of information we talked about last time, but I think it, it's helpful as we go forward. Because in the first couple of verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, you kind of have what I call the thematic introduction to the book. Now, of course, we have the author, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. We spent a good time last time, a good bit of our time last time, uh, studying uh, the, the author of this book, Solomon. And he introduces here, in verse 1, the words of the preacher, the main speaker of the book of Ecclesiastes, Koheleth, the preacher or the teacher. It is ultimately Solomon's wisdom and experience under God's inspiration that constitutes this writing. And, And so we're introduced again, once again, as we looked at last time, it is Solomon who wrote these things for us. And one of the things that I was thinking about is that in life, we have 
situations where we need to know answers. You ever been in a situation and you just didn't know how to handle it and you thought, man, I could really use somebody else's help with this, right? Um, In these instances, it really behooves us to speak to those who know more than we do and have experience in that. You know, when I'm at, at my house, I'm working on a project at my house, or maybe I'm working on my car or something like that, and I get stumped, and I just say, well, I don't know enough here to, to, to help make the situation better, I, I will try to contact someone I think knows something, right? I'm going to send a message or call them. And if I can't think of anybody or someone's not readily available, you know where I go? I go on YouTube and find somebody who knows more than me and watch a video on how to do it, right? You ever done that? You ever get through one of those videos and say, this is really easy. And about two minutes in, you go, this isn't easy, right? You're like, I don't own a shop and a, and a lift, right? <laughs> Maybe it's easy for you, but it's not for me. When it comes to experiencing everything the world has to offer, okay, I want you to think about this. If you, when it comes to experiencing in this life everything this temporal world has to offer and pitting that against the incredible wisdom of God and knowing him, I challenge you to find someone better than Solomon who can do that for us. He had everything he ever wanted Every experience, he could buy anything. He could go out and get it. He had also the incredible knowledge and wisdom that was given to him by God. He was the son of David. He was blessed by God, as we looked at last time with that wisdom. Find me another person who has the experience that Solomon has. He's our best human teacher. Obviously, we know that he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these things. But there is hardly anyone better than Solomon to write this. He's the wisest man who ever lived, who enjoyed everything he ever wanted. And so he speaks to you from experience and with the assurance that this message is inspired by God for us to read today. And then we see again one of the main, the main theme of the book of Ecclesiastes in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is Vanity. And again, we spent time on this thematic statement last time, but I want to recapitulate a little bit here once more. Solomon declares several times in verse 2 that everything is vanity or meaningless. The, the Hebrew word is hevel. Hevel, hevel, everything is hevel. And the idea behind that word is it's vapor, it is smoke, it, it is temporary, it is fleeting, it is deceiving right? You, you, you think it's there, think of smoke, and you reach out and you try to grab it and it's not there. So Solomon says that's what everything is. And in order to understand the, this theme and Solomon's approach in this book, it helps to know where everything is driving to. Now again, we looked at this last time, but Solomon is driving us to this conclusion. If you, if you were to go all the way, and we're not going to go there now, but you could go all the way to the end of the book, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Solomon makes this conclusion. What matters most in this life is living for the Lord, is following him and having a relationship with him. And he talks about the goads and the nails of this book. And those goads and nails point us to the necessity of a relationship with God and a preoccupation with the preeminence of living for his glory. Otherwise, living life is hevel. It is vanity. It is meaningless. And again, I think that perspective is important. I want to remind us, I'll probably remind us that perspective quite often because I think if you don't have 
that perspective and you don't understand the hope that Solomon is driving you towards, that what matters most is God and living for him, then you might get lost and misunderstand the message. You get lost in the, in the seemingly hopeless swirl of meaningless that rolls over you page after page after page. But this is perspective. It's reality check. And so, in verses 3 through 11, Solomon opens this book with a poem illustrating for us the futility of the temporal world. And we're going to break this apart tonight into two different sections. The first section is found in verses 3 through 7, and that is nature's testimony of the futility of the temporal. And it starts in in verse 3 with the temporal reality. Verse 3 says, What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What Solomon asks here is a rhetorical question. He asks, what does a man gain through all the work he does here? And the way this question is asked expects a negative answer. What does this man gain? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The answer would be nothing. That's what he's, that's what he's getting at here. We, we labor, we struggle, we scratch, and we claw, but Solomon postulates that our human efforts are of no lasting, permanent value. At the end, he asks, what is there left over? An interesting word Solomon uses here in verse 3, what does man gain? That word gain literally talks about what is the profit. What is, what is left for you when you have paid your dues in life? What is the gain to you? And again, the idea here is nothing is left. And here, Solomon now frames the context of these thoughts. He says at the end of verse 3, that that which he toils under the sun. Now, this is an interesting phrase. This phrase is used 29 times over 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. And it helps us understand what Solomon is saying. Because what Solomon is, is not saying He's not saying that life is hopeless altogether. He's not spreading a message encouraging us to end it all and go away. He's calling on us instead to focus our attention in the right place. He's trying to demonstrate for us the temporal nature of this life. And so what Solomon is saying is because life is so temporal, there is no value in investing solely in life under the sun. Because where do we live? We live under the sun. That's what he's talking about, this world that we live in. The basic idea is this. If this life is all you have, it is a sad existence indeed. And now he calls on witnesses to this end. And the first of these witnesses come from the world around us. Solomon's father was King David. And David wrote this in Psalm 19 verses 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. David said that the, the, the heavens, the creation, the world around you declares who God is. It shows the creator. Solomon kind of takes 
a different approach on the same testimony of the creation. Because not only does creation demand a creator and glorify her God, Solomon uses it to show us that it demonstrates the temporal nature of mankind and all his accomplishments. So in verse 4, the first testimony from nature comes in the earth's permanence. It says there, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. By nature, mankind, man, is a transient being. This is part of our nature at the fall. Sin brought with it one major, I mean, there were a lot of consequences, but what did God say? The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, obviously, we understand that the greatest death that God is talking about is the spiritual death that separates man from God because of sin. But there is also a physical element to that, that no longer could they partake of the tree of life, they would one day die. And so, generation after generation have one major thing in common. They all eventually die. Just think about when you read through the selected genealogies of Scripture, that is the common, nation, common denominator you will observe. So-and-so was born, he lived so many years, and he died. And you'll read that over again. And he died, and he died, and he died. You ever notice, you're like, man, these guys, well, that's what happens, right? That's part of who we are. Generations go, Solomon says, and generations come. Yet though mankind lives and dies, what does he say in verse 4? The earth Remains. In comparison to mankind's short existence, the earth remains, he says here, forever. Now, we know from the scripture that this earth we live on will not last us into eternity. God will one day create a new heaven and a new earth. But what Solomon is communicating here is the permanence of nature compared to the impermanence of man. It is something to consider that the world we exist on The world on which you live and breathe and go about your life is the same world that Solomon wrote this on 3,000 years ago. It's still here. Solomon is long gone, right? He had similar experiences to us today on this planet we call Earth. And throughout Scripture, the Earth and its features are used to represent things that do not change. The psalmist will often refer to mountains being everlasting. Why? Because they stand for millennia, right? We observe trees today that we, may, we think may be even as old as 5,000 years. It's fascinating to us to come across these things that have been around for so long because we only get so much time. In fact, a 100-year-old person is an enigma to us, right? Because people just don't live that long. So the question is, what difference does one make on such a planet? What is the significance of our lives compared to the nature of nature? Not because mankind isn't important or intelligent or relevant. It's not what Solomon is, is getting at here. But he's saying, what, is the, what are our lives compared to the nature of nature because man's time frame for an investment in this place is so small? Nature continues to cycle, and the change of generations is one of these cycles that can be observed. And so without the proper heavenly perspective, 
there is a perspective of hevel that must be observed here. The generations come, the generations go. The earth is still here. It is hevel. And from creation, Solomon then calls on the second witness in verse 5, the sun's repetition. He says, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Nature outlives us. It goes on and on. We get one shot at life, and then we're gone. But even nature illustrates for us the monotony of mere existence on this world. And first Solomon says, look at the sun. Day after day, the sun goes about its task. It rises in the east. It sets in the west. Solomon tells us here that it hastens to the place of its setting after it rises. That's an interesting word that he uses there. Literally, he says, it pants its way. It's panting its way across the sky. But what does it accomplish in such a journey? What is the point of its heat? As far as nature is concerned, it's just another day. The sun, because of that word pants, Solomon says, is like a runner. It runs its race, but the race never ends. It just goes on and on and on, over and over and over and over again. It's really what it is. It's like the runner on the track. Anybody here run track growing up? Okay. Um, That's great, isn't it? You run around in circles and you never go anywhere, right? All of that running, I'm not saying, by the way, that you weren't a good runner. It's just one of those things. It's funny. You see these guys, they run on the track, they run on the track, and some of them will run miles, right? I ran miles. Well, where'd you go? Well, nowhere. I just went like this, right? That's what the sun is, right? Day after day after day, round and round and round and round and round. And as the earth spins, the sun continues to rise and set. It's burning heat, performing its duty day in and day out with no end in sight. We tell time by the sun, we observe changes based on our distance from it or based on the angle at which we experience it, but it's still the same sun day after day after day after day. And of course, it's a welcome sight after cloudy days. We're about to enter the cloudy season here in Michigan, right, where the sun goes away for a while. And it's a very welcome thing to us when we see the sun again, because why? Because it's the same thing we've come to expect, because it goes on and on and on. And then Solomon says, not only do you have the sun, but you also have the wind's circuit he mentions here in verse 6. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. And you take these two verses together, you take the sun, and what direction does the sun encompass? East and and west. And so then Solomon talks about the wind, and obviously wind can blow more directions than north and south. But what he's talking about, he's looking at the whole of creation, right? He says here, the wind is in constant motion. motion. And now that's something that we observe very much so here in in mid-Michigan, right? I came in tonight, and as I opened the door, the wind is blowing all around and, and, and blowing the door open. We have our share of wind. It blows in and out. Solomon says it goes round and round. At the end of the day, the wind is still the wind. It hasn't changed. It hasn't grown. It hasn't evolved. It performs as it always has based on the pressures and temperatures of the earth. Again, there's lots of activity, but there's no change. And then in verse 7, he talks about the water's endless quest. 
He says, all the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Solomon calls on the water as witness that the streams and the rivers run to the sea, but the sea is never full. You know, if, you, if you're filling something up with water, you know, maybe you have a bucket or something, there's going to come a point at which that whatever you're filling is full, right? Unless you've got a hole in the bottom. What Solomon says, here all this water, it's running into the sea, into the sea, into the sea, but the sea never fills up. There's never a point at which the cycle ceases. In fact, what causes the flow to decrease to the ocean isn't because the ocean got too full, but it's because the rivers, there was too much drought, right? And the rivers dried up. There's a lack of rain. The rain falls and replenishes the streams, and the cycle continues in endless fashion. The rivers empty into the sea, but they cannot accomplish the task of filling it. What does Solomon say? This is futile activity. To To the place the rivers go, he says, They go again. They didn't make a difference. They just load up and they do it again. Over and over and over again. It's what we sometimes call the circle of life. The way of nature. It goes round and round. And Solomon says, under the sun, it's meaningless. Without God, man lives for no higher purpose. And just as nature goes on and on, man continues to go on and on. I mean, just think about how your life, even little parts of your life, mirror the experiences of nature. I gave you kind of that illustration as we opened the message about how we do the same things day after day, right? Well, let's, let's talk about some of those things that we, we feel that even around our home. You fill up the sink and the dishwasher with dishes, right? And eventually you think, you know, I should do something about that. And so you wash all the dishes, and you run the dishwasher, and I don't know about you, but we have six people in our home. So guess what happens about two hours later? It's just back in the dishwasher, right? And, and, you, and you, you fill it up, and it empty, you empty it, and you fill it up, and you empty it. It's over and over and over again, right? And let's not talk about the laundry basket, right? The laundry runneth over out of the basket, right? Again, I... I don't know about you, but we, we go through a lot of laundry in our house. And you, you run all the laundry, and then you come back, and it's like, wow, I thought I just did that. And there's the basket. They're full again. You dump them, you do the same thing over and over and over again. The bills, the emails, the grass you got to mow, these things never seem to end. It's a monotonous cycle, just like the pictures that Solomon gave of nature. And in this cycle... We have our own personal experiences that attest to the the meaninglessness of the temporary life. And so now Solomon turns from the pictures in nature to our experiences of mankind. So in verses 8 through 11, we have man's own experience. And we begin in verse 8 with this idea of dissatisfaction. Solomon says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. The circle of life continues on in nature. The endless cycle reminds us of life's temporal nature. The earth repeats its processes with or without us. If you decide tomorrow that you're going to stay in bed all day, the sun is still going to rise and it's still going to go through those things, whether you're there or not. 
So this really frames what we might call human achievement in realistic light. Now Solomon turns to those human achievements to examine their true nature. And this is what he says in verse 8. At his core, man is dissatisfied with life and his experiences in it. Solomon made the point that the creation is full of activity, but nothing is accomplished. It's just like it's running in circles. Mankind feels this in his soul, in his own life. He says in verse 8 that everything brings weariness. Nothing brings lasting, meaningful satisfaction. Nothing that you see will fill your heart. He says that at the end of verse 8. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. Nothing you hear will stop the craving for more. The ear is not filled with hearing. There is always a cry for something bigger and better. There is always a demand for the next entertainment, endeavor, or accomplishment. And and you don't have to look very far to observe this. Just look at our world we live in. There is always clamoring for the next TV series or music single that will top the charts and glue people to their TVs, right? What will be, I mean, we're, we're getting into that time of year where people start talking, we get into the fall. What will be the show this fall that will keep people coming back, right? Because we're not satisfied. There has to be something else. There are always enticements for you to purchase this experience or add this to your bucket list and cross it off. There's always bigger and better stunts that someone has to perform. And look within your own heart and soul, right? Again, I think it's easy for us to say, yeah, look at all those people out there and the things, but look at our own lives. How many hobbies have you picked up in life and put down again because they just didn't satisfy? How many distractions have you engaged yourself in or pushed your kids to get engage in just so you wouldn't be bored or they wouldn't be bored? How many unnecessarily large purchases have you made just because you felt like this would be nicer, would make you better, or give you a new level of happiness? What has happened before will happen again. The vacation will end too soon, leaving you longing for more. The video game will age, pressuring you to drop money on the latest expansion or installment. That investment you made will sour, leaving you with a financial burden. That clothing will fall apart or go out of style, leaving you with buyer's remorse. That car will stall on the side of the road, leaving you to question if it's another lemon. That relationship will quit serving your selfish needs, leading you to question if it's even worth it. Things on this earth do not satisfy. That's what Solomon says. They were never meant to. And by the way, this isn't a 21st century observance or problem. This has been the case all throughout history. Remember, this was written by Solomon about 3,000 years ago. And that cycle has repeated itself generation after generation after generation. And what Solomon says here is, it is quite repetitive. In verses 9 and 10. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. (coughs) And just as nature is cyclical, so are man's experiences. It is here in verse 9 that you have a phrase that you've probably heard and you've maybe repeated. 
Did you catch that phrase in verse 9? There is nothing new under the sun. I mean, how many of you have used that phrase before? Right? We, we, we say it quite often. We think, well, I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, right? And this is where it comes from. These two verses show us there's nothing new to the human experience. Now, this is not the message we're sold by the world, right? We, we're informed daily of the latest developments in our world, the things that people have done that nobody has done before. And certainly over the last 100 years, technology has evolved at a rapid rate, yet even this is nothing new. I love the way one pastor, I was reading about this yesterday, and one pastor put it so well. He said, listen, we put a man on the moon, and when he got there, there was nothing for him to do except stare at the earth. There's nothing new, right? For all those years, man sat on earth and stared at the moon and said, we should go there. When he got to the moon, he turned around and stared at the earth. The attitudes that drive such accomplishments, though, are the same. Why do people do the things that they do? Or why do they invent the things they invent? Why? Because there's an ongoing quest for power, for pleasure, for prestige, for wealth, for status, for accomplishment, for gratification, for ease of life, and more. All of these things have driven mankind's accomplishments. They drove them then, they drive them today. The more things change, the more they stay the same. The things our world indulges in are just the latest manifestations of those sins and endeavors. The roots are the same. The fruit has just changed its color, shape, and texture. But it's still the same. The methods evolve, but the motives do not. So, though you may tell yourself, you're doing something that no one else has done before. Solomon says you're just redressing old thoughts and feelings in today's packaging. You might make life easier, more accessible, or even serve the greater good. But Solomon says, hey, you're no originator. There's no satisfaction in these things. It is hevel. The cycle will continue because mankind... Lastly, he says, has an innate, innate a tendency to forget. So he says in verse 11, he talks about obscurity in mankind's experience. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. It is a well-documented fact that we as human beings have short memories. That's why Things that aren't new seem new. That's why the saying exists, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it, right? Because we have short memories. I was just having this conversation with somebody a couple weeks ago about um, a football coach who had been hired by this school and he had problems and so he left and then he went to another school and he had problems and he went to this team and he had problems and we were laughing about that because it's like, don't you know who this guy is? He's got issues. But as long as he's helping my team, we're okay, right? Because we have short memories. We don't remember what happened before or we want to not remember. And this is why the same things are brought up and tried time and again, even if they failed the first time, because no one remembers what happened before, and no one will remember what is done now later on. 
let's think about it this way. The world's population today is somewhere around 7.8 billion people. That's a lot, right? The overwhelming majority of those people will die in obscurity. Think about it. You probably have a brain that's stuffed with names from history class, from church history, from the Bible, right? Anybody got those names in your brain there still from your history classes in the Bible? All these people you remember, right? And if I asked you, you'd probably shout out some of them. And we probably would have some of the same ones because we're Americans and we took U.S. history, right? But think of the billions and billions of people from ages past and present that you know nothing about. Their work is forgotten. Their achievements are lost to the circle of life and the sands of time. And we have to come to the realization that you and I have more of a chance of living our lives in obscurity than we ever do of making an international news headline, let alone a history book. Those closest to you will remember you for a time. But eventually, your memory will fade from this earth. That's illustrated even within my own family. I tell my children, uh, we, just, we were just talking the last few weeks, we were telling, I was telling them a story about my grandparents, and I can tell them things about my grandparents and, and things that I did with them and who they were and these stories of what they did. I can tell them some things about my great-grandparents, but most of my children have never met three of my grandparents, and none of them met my great-grandparents. So you know what eventually is going to happen? Those stories are going to die with me. Those experiences are going to die with me. Those accomplishments still remembered will be forgotten. And you know what's going to happen? Eventually the same thing's going to happen to me. I'm going to die and eventually won't be remembered. This is the way of the world. This is the way of life under the sun. It is hevel. And though it is important to to me, it won't last. So what does Solomon say? This temporal life offers us nothing but futile, fleeting happiness, long forgotten under the sands of time. This is the message of the poem. This temporal life is full of futility. So here's the question. Was that depressing? Was that shocking? Here's the thing. It's a real, honest look at the world we live in. So The question is, what is this? What is this poem, Solomon? What is all of this? You know what it is? It's a call for the gospel. It's a call for us to realize there is something bigger, better, greater, and grander. If we put all of our stock in this life, we're going to feel the pain of temporal futility. If we think we can break the cycle then we're deceiving ourselves. So remember, we know the end of the book, right? Because we talked about it. We know the point to which Solomon is driving us. The goads and the nails drive us towards serving God and keeping his commandments. And I would argue here, this poem is a goad, right? It's, it's not comfortable, right? It's, it's kind of painful. It's kind of depressing. It's kind of, wow, I mean, that's heavy stuff. But it's prodding you to this point. Serve God. 
keep his commandments. Tonight, how do they prod you and fasten your attention? Perhaps you've been living your life with the world in the driver's seat. You're consumed by the temporal, by the here and now. And the kingdom of God has taken a back seat or a sidecar in your life. All your efforts in this world are wasted without God in his proper place. And where is the proper place of God? On the throne. Make the word of God your guide and the things of God your primary focus. Follow him. Submit to him. And find meaning in him. Only then can you enjoy the things he graciously gives you in this life. And again, I think our temptation is to look at this and say, so we just go through life and we never enjoy anything. My friend, there is plenty of joy in this life if God is on the throne. Because that's when the proper perspective is there. That's who I serve and I enjoy the blessings he gives along the way. That's what makes life worth it. Father, thank you for the day you've given us and the time we have to be in your house and study your word. Thank you for the very sobering and real thoughts and words of Solomon tonight. Where we admit, as we read things like this, they're heavy. They weigh on our hearts. They cause us to scratch our heads sometimes. They make us uncomfortable. They make us squirm because they hit so close to home. Lord, would you be gracious enough to convict us in our lives when we have placed so much stock in this temporary world that our priorities are unbalanced? We're no longer serving you. We're trying to serve ourselves, and we're trying to pile up things that don't matter. Lord, would you give us the grace to make that right and live for the kingdom of God? Would you help us to reflect the kingdom of God to others who are drowning in this world, trying to make sense of it all, but struggling. Would you give us opportunities to speak into their lives the goodness of who you are and what you've done? Be with us now as we go from this place. We go into our work weeks. We have other things, activities we're going to do. Help us to keep these things in perspective as we go. In your name we pray.